Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts again one more time as we come to God's word together. Father, help us to come humbly and before your word. Lord, your word says of itself that it is true. And Father, everything else in this world we know is just sinking sand. Lord, there's nothing else that we can build our lives upon that is secure, that is sure. Lord, the best of man's wisdom is subject to change repeatedly. And yet, Lord, your word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, it's a foundation that will never be shaken. And so, Father, this morning as we just continue our study, Lord, we just pray that you give us eyes that can see things spiritually, Lord, ears that can hear, and hearts that are ready to receive. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are now up to the end of the book of Revelation. Um, Chapter 21 is where we are this morning. Uh, It's an incredible chapter. I've had the privilege of teaching through this chapter a couple of times in the past, and it's breathtaking as we look at what God has in store for us. You know, in uh, in the King James Version, the word heaven is found 582 times. Um, Heaven's 133. Um, So there's only kind of 700 mentions there of heaven. Um, 390 times we have the word forever. You know, the Bible tells us a lot about heaven and about what's coming and I think part of that is so that it kind of removes any wild speculations Uh, the Bible gives us details so that we're not in any doubt you see God seems to delight in telling his children what's ahead Uh, in fact it's interesting you know you look and you find a couple of groups or individuals in scripture that are referred to as beloved of God Abraham was one Daniel was another you know and and both those reveal things that is yet to come. John is another, and John, of course, is the one that's recording these things for us. And then another group is the church. Um, you know, that God loves to reveal things to his own. Well, this morning as we go through, we're going to look at a number of things. But really, the, the, the key thing here is that it's like coming home from a long journey. You know, you've been out in the car or been away on holiday, and there's nothing quite like coming home, is there? You know, it, it's nice when you, you know, it's, it's great when you get to go away somewhere, but when you come back and you're in the, the familiar surroundings, when you know where everything is, you know, and it's lovely. It's a real peace and rest uh, in all of those things. And I mean, this really, looking at this morning, is the ultimate coming home from a long journey. We've all been sojourning, going through this life, through this world, in a sense, longing, waiting to get home. And this chapter really speaks about that moment. When we finally make it home, Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, in chapter 3, verse 20, that we're not citizens of this world. We have dual citizenship, but really, we are citizens of heaven. That, that's where we belong. That's our real home. And we're just here for now. Colossians 3, again, Paul urges us there in verse 2, to set our affection, to set our minds on the things above. That's where we should be focusing, because that's the real reality. We tend to think of now as reality, and the things that we can feel and touch, and everything as the real things. You know, it's uh, I've listened to much of Chuck Misler over the years, a wonderful Bible teacher. You know, and one of the things I remember him saying was, you know, even you look at this, this lectern here, and we think of this as being solid, and of course, to our minds it is solid, but... For an atomic level, there is more space between the molecules than there is substance. You know, at an atomic level, th- there's 
this is an illusion. It has the appearance of being solid, but it's not. We live, as scientists have suggested, we live in a digital simulation. For those of you who have uh, seen the film The Matrix, it's kind of the idea that this world is kind of, it has the appearance of being real to us, but there's something beyond that which we, we know and understand. Just as an aside, you know, there's lots of work done um, looking for extraterrestrial intelligence and so on. And there's all sorts of reports about, you know, being able to track these various vehicles that have been unidentified. And, and some of them, they've, they've tracked them, apparently going below the surface of the Earth and then reappearing and then doing 90 degree turns. And there's nothing in the physical world that can do that. Now, some people will say it's just speculation, it's just hoaxes and so on. And yet some of these things have been very credible reports. And I don't, first of all, I don't believe there's extraterrestrial life. I think the Bible makes that clear, that God created this world and then after that he made the stars and everything else. This world was what God intended to do. I don't think God's made life elsewhere, but I do believe there is extra-dimensional life. That's very different. And I think that Satan has the ability to appear in various forms and guises, and certainly the angels that rebelled with Satan also. So we shouldn't be surprised sometimes if we hear these kind of what may seem strange accounts. You know, there's more to it. And, and certainly, we you know, people that are into the paranormal and all those kind of things, um, there is a reality to those things. And it's very hard to just explain those things away. Well, we looked last time that this heavens and this earth are going to be dissolved. God is going to do away with everything that we think of real as now. And everybody that is not in Christ will be brought and stand before the, the great white throne of God. C.S. Lewis called this world a shadowland. I love that that expression, that term. And, and it is. That, that's exactly what this world is. It's getting ready for something better. And as we've read in that verse, as Bob read for us a moment ago, Abraham knew that this world was just temporary. He was told by God to leave his home in Ur of the Chaldees, and he travelled first of all up to Haran, and then finally down into the land of Canaan, later to be known as Israel. And this verse we just looked at, by faith... Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should afterward receive for an inheritance, obeyed. Well, that's the first thing, isn't it? You know, when God calls, we should obey. And we're told he went out not knowing whether he went. I love that too. Oswald Chambers has got a whole book under that title. Not knowing whither is the, the title of the book. And it's really the way that, speaking of Abraham, that, that faith just to step out not quite knowing where God's going to take you. But you know, Sometimes we need to take those steps of faith. You know, children, when we take them places, they don't know where we're taking them. They just, they just come along. You know, if I say to Connie, come on, let's go somewhere, she doesn't stop to ask me where we're going on occasionally, but you know, she's not that bothered about the destination, she just cares that she's with her daddy. You know, and that's the way we need to be in our walk with the Lord. It carries on. By faith, he sojourned in a land of promise. As in a strange country. He didn't make it his home. He was told, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob. He didn't put down roots. He didn't build big elaborate buildings. It's not because he wasn't wealthy. We're told he had 318 trained servants. Wealth wasn't a problem to Abraham. But he chose not to make a permanent dwelling there. We're told that they were heirs with him of the same promise. And verse 10 says, For he looked for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Even back then, somewhere around about 2000 BC, so 4,000 years ago, Abraham had realized that there is something more 
than just the, the physical, tangible things that we see in this life right now. See, the place that is described in this chapter and the beginning of chapter 22 is really the, the culmination of every longing, every desire that we have ever known. You know, I, I think it's quite interesting that the world often has this idea of, you know, looking for the bright lights of the city. You know, people leave their homes, they go to universities or whatever, um, and the idea is, you know, they want to get to a city, because the cities are, are where things happen. I mean, I, I work in a city, I work in London, and there's plenty of bright lights there. But I tell you, they will all pale into insignificance compared to the bright lights of the city that we're about to look at this morning. This is the city. This is the one that really everything else is just a really poor reflection of. There's something about cities. There's something about the community. There's something about being so close to everything and where things are happening and things are going on. And a lot of people, that really appeals to them. But that's just a poor reflection of what God has in store. You see, all those good things... Well, they're multiplied many times over in what God has awaiting those who are his. As we see this incredible city that God is planning for those who have put their trust in Jesus. And by the way, the light that we're going to look at in this city is brighter than anything we can imagine. We'll talk about that in a short while. But we're just given a glimpse, but enough. God kind of gives us enough here to, to wear our appetites, to get us excited about this place that we're going to. And you know, even if there were no details, just to know there is a place. I mean that in its own is just something that for people going through this life, people that are going through various trials and struggles and difficulties, to know that there is a place. And we'll look at some of the things that we're told about it in a moment. That is enough to give us some focus. You know, we're told in the book of Proverbs in chapter 29, verse 11, I believe, that where there is no vision, people cast off restraint. Some translations have that, where there is no prophecy. My, my paraphrase of that is, where there is nothing to aim at, people get sloppy. If you've got no aims or no goals or whatever, then you're just going around in circles. You're not really going anywhere. You know, in, in life, you need to have some goals and aims and you know, direction and so on. And isn't it what we try and encourage our children to have a, an idea about where they want to go and a career plan and so on? There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But this is the ultimate, that God has given us something we can look to. You know, if you're navigating, you need to know the destination if you want to get there. And this is what God has given us. He's told us the destination. He's told us where we're heading. And it's there to, to be... Something that we can focus on. And we're going to see that the details that we're given make this place just absolutely stunning, breathtaking, beyond anything that we could have dreamt of ourselves. Colossians chapter 1 verse 12 says that we should be giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers in the inheritance of the saints in light. I mean, just from that verse, we're told that we have an inheritance. Okay? That word meet... That word just from the, the Greek, uh, hikenu, uh, to enable or to qualify, has made us qualified or enabled us through Christ, of course, and not of our own ability. But God has enabled us, qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance. There's something that we have got awaiting us, something that we will inherit. You see, for those in Christ, we know that we are assured of salvation. 
you know, we're promised rewards for faithfulness. We've talked quite a bit about this recently. But in addition to those rewards, we now qualify to receive an inheritance. I mean, if you just got a letter through the post and said that some great auntie that you'd never met had left a great inheritance to you, I mean, you'd be delighted. Well, this is, in a sense, similar in as much as you're being told now through God's word that you qualify for an inheritance that you never knew was waiting for you. And we're told that that inheritance is reserved for us in heaven. In First Peter Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, what we're told here, incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. Well, we'll talk in a moment about what we're going to inherit, but just notice again that this inheritance is incorruptible. It's not something that's going to disappear or lose value over time. But can we know? Can we know what it is that we are going to inherit? Well, probably the most misquoted verse in the Bible, and I've got a few little bugbears with with things in Scripture where people mistranslate things or misquote things. And this is, to me, one of the biggest. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Verse 9, first of all, it says, this is quoting... First of all, it says, but it is written, and it's coming from Isaiah 64, verse 4. So Isaiah recorded this. I has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. And people say, see, you know, God's just done some wonderful things, but we can't know. And there's some songs that are written on this verse, and there's all sorts of comments that I've heard. But we need to read on. You never just take one verse on the Bible on its own. The next verse helps us to understand. It says, but God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. This is saying that Isaiah was saying, I have not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of men the things that God has prepared for them that love him. But then Paul says, but now God has revealed them. They were hidden in the past. It was a mystery in the Old Testament. But now God has revealed them. We can know these things. So what is it that God has revealed? What is it that we're going to inherit? Well, that's what we'll be looking at as we go through the rest of this study this morning. Second Peter chapter one verse four says, "Whereby we are given, whereby given unto us exceeding great and precious promises." Some time back, we did a, a, a series three studies looking at the promises of God. We're told that they're great and precious promises, things that we want to hold on to. That by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see, perspective affects performance. That's very true in the the business world, but it's true in many areas of our lives. If we don't have a perspective, as I said earlier, nothing to aim at, then we can often find that we get very careless. But God has given us these promises to hold on to. And it says that these promises themselves are actually going to be that which will help us in our walk. Because it will help us to live a life that's pleasing to God. It says that by these, you might be partakers of the divine nature. So by the promises that God has given you, because you have a focal point, something to look forward to, it helps you to live in a godly manner. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. See, God's promise does give us perspective. Let's jump into chapter 21 and look at these things that we're told. So first of all we read, 
And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now we looked at this last time, as we looked at the old heaven and the old earth being done away with, as we looked at the judgment throne of God, and that's all that stands there. And you know, some people would argue that this is just a renovated heaven and earth. Now, this is very clear from these verses that God is going to do something new. I mean, what's one of the, the biggest debates that we, we have going on? It's probably this whole issue of creation versus evolution. Did we evolve or was there a creator God? Even this week, Marla came home from school and something that was obviously said in one of the, the sessions at school was, and she asked the question, you know, Daddy, are, are we animals? And she kind of had that kind of like, oh, this doesn't sound right to me. And so we had a chat. And obviously that's something that's come out at primary school. They're teaching our children that they're animals. Is it any wonder when they grow up that so many young people behave like animals when they're being told they are animals? The Bible says that we're created in God's image. We're very distinct from the animals. Animals don't have an eternal soul. We do. Man was given dominion over all of creation, over all of the animals. So again, the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and John sees this new heaven and earth created. There won't be any debate because... People will be aware of this. They'll have known God has done it. John says, I see it. And it may well be that those who are about to enter into this new eternal order will see God recreate or create again. The word is, is creating out of nothing. The, the Hebrew word it would have been bara as it was in the beginning of Genesis. God is creating out of nothing. But we'll see God do it. There won't be a debate as to did God create or of course God created. When is it going to occur? Well, let's just refresh our memory of the timings of these things. We've been looking a lot as we've been going through Revelation at what we sometimes refer to as Daniel's 70th week. Um, and this is that, that period of time of the tribulation. We have the, the one world church that will be dominant for the first part of that period of time. Then these ten kings will come to power under Antichrist. So that seven year period. After that seven year period, Jesus will return and will establish his kingdom. That will then lead to the thousand year millennial reign of Jesus. When Jesus will reign on earth, the disciples, we're told, will be given the uh, authority of ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel. The church seemingly will be given various roles uh, of authority during that period of time. Satan is bound through this period of time. As we looked at that in Revelation chapter 20. So that will follow on. And then after that we get to the great white throne judgment. And that's what we looked at last week. When the heaven and earth, this current world as we know it, will be destroyed, will disappear, and then we move into the eternal order. 2 Peter 3, 10-13 again just says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. Well, there's that big bang for you. It's not back, that's always ahead of us. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. Seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? You see, Peter, again, links the reality of what's coming to the way we should be living now. You know, when you know the reality of what's ahead, it should change the way you live your life. I mean, just in a a worldly perspective, if you were driving down a motorway and you knew there was a police car with a camera at the side of the road ahead of you, it would probably change the way you drive your vehicle. Well... There is a great white throne judgment. There is a judgment day. There is going to be this accountability for those who have not put their trust in Jesus Christ. And yet even for those who are Christians, there will be the beamer seat, the judgment seat of Christ, when we will be rewarded according to our work. So it should affect us in the way we live our lives, knowing these things are coming to pass. 
Peter carries on and says, this is how we should be. We should be looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, you can see again those exceedingly great and precious promises, according to his promise, we look for the new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. I mean, that may not hit us, that may not mean that much, but we have got so accustomed to living in a world that is so far removed from God's ideal, from God's perfect standard. Unrighteousness abounds, and we've got so used to it. But the the thought of living in a world that is perfect, it's it's hard for us to, to get our head around and imagine. But again, this reference to the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth again, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now we mentioned this last time, this is going to be radically different from the world that we know at the moment. You see, at the moment, 70% of the face of the earth is covered in water. Now actually, if you average, average it out, it's only about 2.3 metres in depth. Um, so much of the water covering the earth is very, very shallow, uh, even allowing for the very deep portions uh, 70% of though, the face of the earth is covered in water. And that's the reason we have the hydro system that we have and we have of the clouds and the rainfall. Apparently every day we have about 1.5 trillion tons of rain fall upon the earth. And of course then we have the evaporation process and so on. In um, Ecclesiastes, Solomon spoke of all of this uh, before modern science caught up and understood it, but he described it in detail. Uh, just a question, how is it going to affect the trees without all this rain without the water of the seas a lot of questions as to how it's going to work will they have roots in the same way as trees have now because they put down their roots into the ground to draw up the water from the earth there's a lot of how is the the ecology of this new heaven and new earth going to work if there's no sea will the leaves be multicolored why do I ask that well simply because why are leaves green today well it's because of the presence of chlorophyll in the leaves it gives them the the green color they have and that is because of the, the light of the sun the sun it just shines on the leaves, it draws out of the uh, the sun the energy from, from the sun, it converts it to water, to CO2, sugar, starch, and so on. You know, so what will it be like? There's a lot of these kind of interesting questions that we can rack our brain. I mean, you may not what you might rack in your brain, but I just think it's fascinating to start to think about this. It's going to be a totally different system than we've ever had any kind of concept of. Why no more sea? Well, the sea very much acts as a cleansing agent for the planet at the moment. But there won't be a need for that cleansing in the same way. You see, it does provide salt. It purges, it cleanses, preserves our planet. But you see, in the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be a need for those things. The sea at the moment acts as if you were like the lungs, the liver, the kidneys of the earth. The new system is going to be perfect. And in verse 2, And I, John, saw the holy city. Now, I think it's interesting that John mentions his name. If you're familiar with John's Gospel, you'll know that John goes to great lengths not to mention his own name. You know, he even referring to himself sometimes in the third person. But he doesn't refer to himself in his own Gospel. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself, seemingly. But here, in Revelation, he doesn't say, and I saw. He says, and I, John, saw. It's, it's almost as if he's saying, you know, look, th- I saw this, this is me. It's, it's, this is an eyewitness testimony. This isn't just something that he heard from somebody He's getting the point across that this is John. 
John who recorded the Gospels has given us the letters that we have and has written down this revelation. It was he himself that saw these things. And I think he's making the point because what he's about to see is so breathtaking, so beyond our imagination that we might just consider it fanciful if we didn't have that kind of anchor point. John's saying, I saw this. I actually was there. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He said a few weeks ago, you know, when a, a bride is getting ready for a wedding day, when she's putting that dress on, it's not just a, that'll do. It's the best it can possibly be. Every bride wants to look beautiful for their wedding day. And we're told that this city is just like that. It says a bride adorned for her husband. And even that word adorned implies this is some lavish, wonderful picture that John is seeing. You know, as John is, is looking, I mean, I, in fact I was talking to, to Marla last night, we were just talking a little bit about some of these things. Um, we've put a, got a chart up in her bedroom now of the lineage all the way from Adam to Jesus and there's lots of other things on the chart um, and it's got the various gemstones and we'll talk about some of those stones in a minute and so we just started talking about the new Jerusalem and how it's going to look and what it's going to be like and I was saying you know how long did it take God to create the current heavens and earth and the answer of course is six days is what the Bible tells us and God rested on the seventh well, how long has God been preparing this well certainly we're told Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, John records there that Jesus was going to prepare a place for us. So this has been in the building stages for some 2,000 years. Now of course God doesn't need time to do things, but you just get the impression that this is going to be, if I may use the expression, out of this world. John, in 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 to 5 says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. And he goes on, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifest unto us. You get the impression that John is really trying to communicate to you the reality of this. He's saying, you know, when he's writing these things down, he's saying, look, we saw it with our own eyes. We, we've looked upon it. We've touched. Our hands have handled. We see it. We bear witness. And he goes on. That which we have seen is again and heard declare we unto you. And Peter makes a point. He says that we've not followed cunningly devised fables. John here is saying the same thing. That you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard from him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John, clearly not interested in fiction, but that which is verifiable. John saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And we're told here that it's a holy city. Now holy and city are two words that you don't often associate with each other, certainly in today's world. Normally cities are seen as a place of uh, all sorts of iniquity and problems and crime and so on. You know, we talk about the inner cities, don't we? And that, that phrase has the idea of a problem area. Well, this city is very different. This city, we're told, is a holy city. You know, those ideas, you know, the, the closer we get to the centre of this city, unlike the world today, the better things are going to get. And we're told that this new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. 
We'll look at more details in a minute. God delights to give us his very best and always has done, always will. Even this earth, you know, when it was originally created, was wonderful. But it seems that what is coming is even better. Again, bride adorned, that idea of perfect and ready. Verse 3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. This is the last time we hear that that phrase, great voice. 21 times in the book of Revelation we find it recorded. And I heard a great voice. John mentioned it again, this great voice saying these things. Behold, the tabernacle, or literally the dwelling of God, is with men. And this has been God's desire since before the foundation of the world, that God would be able to walk with man. We read in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve walked with God. And of course, then sin separated that. And ever since that point, God has been working back to this point, to get back to that place where we will be his people and he will be our God. As we're told here, he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. You see, there is so much about this that's for us, and yet there's an element here that there are, there's something for God. And for God, it's the chance to fellowship with his creation, in harmony, in peace, without the presence of sin. Notice, with them, that, that, that phrase occurs I think, six times in these verses. So again, the tabernacle. In 1 John 14, John there says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. Of course, at the time of the second coming, Jesus will return to this earth and will dwell among us. But this is still looking forward to the ultimate, which we're looking at now in verse 3 of Revelation 21, that God will finally tabernacle, dwell with his creation. And verse 4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. Now before I comment on this verse, I just want to highlight something. that Note the timing of when this is occurring. This is occurring right at the end of this order of things, as God is about to lead us into this eternity with him. It's at this point that all the tears are wiped away and so on. Now that implies that up until this point, there may well still be tears, even in heaven. And I think there's that possibility of people getting to heaven and being saved and yet realizing they've wasted their lives as believers. Not serving God, not putting up treasure and laying up treasure in heaven. I think there will be regrets for many people when they get to the beamer seat, the judgment seat of Christ. As we were looking already a few weeks ago, and I think I mentioned last week, as we stand before the beamer seat, as each one is given crowns rewarding for their service. And some people stop and think that all those opportunities they had, they could have spoken to somebody about the Lord, or they could have served in some way for God's kingdom, for God's glory. And yet they chose to spend their time on things for themselves. And there's so many things, so many distractions. I think there will be regret. I think there may well be tears in heaven. And 1 Corinthians 3 certainly implies that in the way that it's written. Speaking of those who are saved, yet so is by fire. But at this point now we come to, after all of those things, and now God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And I don't think this is just metaphorically speaking. I think there's an implication here that God himself, we will have new bodies by this point, will physically come, as it were, and wipe away those tears from your eyes. Just as 
you wipe away the the tears from a child's eyes when they're crying. Yesterday, I uh, went out with Amita. Uh, we went out for a little bike ride together, and it, it went very well. We didn't fall off or anything until we got right back home. And then as she went to to get off, she kind of stumbled a bit and just hurt her, her arm as she cried. And so I got to wipe away her tears from her eyes. You know, and there's something lovely as a a parent to be able to do that and to give your child a, a hug and say, you know, it's okay, it's going to be all right. Well, that's just the small scale. This is the the big scale. This is God wiping away the tears from your eyes. All the struggles we've had in life, all the challenges, all the times that you've fallen and stumbled. You know, all those that have lost a loved one. You know, we we struggle when someone dies to to deal with that, and yet we're not wired for death. God never intended death to be part of the plan. Of course, God knew from before the foundation of the world that Jesus would be slain for us. But God's ideal wasn't death. Death was introduced as a way of bringing hope again. I know that that almost seems counterintuitive, but it was because of death that God allowed his own son to come and die for us. Even Jesus wept when Lazarus died. As humans, we can cope with most things, but death is something that we really struggle with. That's because God never intended it. It was never part of the the plan. And we're going to come to this point now where there will be no more death. And look, neither sorrow. I mean, how many times, even in our, our daily lives now, do we find that there's sorrow for one thing or another? The The weight of responsibility, the expectations, the pressures that life throws at us. You know, for for people that, that have day jobs, the pressure... It seems to be getting more intense each year, doesn't it? You know, I remember speaking to my granddad and the things that, that he had to do and, and the, the kind of working pattern wasn't hugely different. He still worked extremely long hours and it was more of the, the weekends were the only time he got to spend with family. But the intensity now of life. You know, there used to be a time that if you were sick and you didn't go to work, you would be sick and you would stay at home. Now if you're sick... The boss is on the phone and you've got mobile phones and you've got laptops and you've got internet and you can still get your emails done and, you know, you can't even recover in peace anymore. You know, the world has, has changed so much through the advances in technology. You know, there's a lot of sorrow, there's a lot of heartache in the world. And again, notice that there's going to be no crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. Uh, this is, you know, that means that we're not going to cause each other pain, and other people are not going to inflict pain on us, and that the circumstances won't be painful. All of those things we're told, the former things are passed away. We could spend a long time just dissecting the things in this verse. But what a hope, you know, again, Paul tells us that we have exceedingly great and precious promises. And here, some of the greatest and most precious promises that we can imagine. All the tears and the sorrow, the death, pain, all gone. It's all the former things. That's what it used to be like. And notice that the first action, though, of God is to wipe away our tears. It's the loving Father. It's kind of that almost finally welcome home. We've got there. Verse 5, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. As a behold has the idea of kind of, Listen, look, take note of this. Everything is going to become new. All things. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. You know, there's almost an idea here 
that John is kind of there, jaw dropped, just just totally blown away, seeing all of this, trying to understand it, and it's almost as if God has to say, uh, John, please wake up, write, record this stuff. That's what John was supposed to be doing. And he's specifically given that instruction. Write, write this down. For these words are true and faithful. The, the idea in the Greek here is that these words are genuine and dependable. I mean, the, the, these things we can rely on. This isn't just something that is a, a pipe dream. This isn't something that we just would like it to be like this. No, God says these things are genuine and you can depend upon them. And he said unto me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first letter in the Greek alphabet and the last letter in the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. We were speaking, weren't we, the other week, I mentioned in just a moment, about in Luke 16, the Lazarus and the beggar and the uh, the rich man, Lazarus was the beggar and the rich man that goes down to Hades and he's there looking for somebody to satisfy that thirst and no one to satisfy that thirst. Uh, here we're told that that thirst, that longing that we have will be satisfied. I will give unto him that is the thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. We'll talk a little next week more about this water. It's done here. Just to mention one of the key verses in the Bible. This is worth noting if you underline verses in your Bible. This is a really important one. Because this is God's will. This is God's plan. Paul says, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. What is the mystery of God's will? This is it. According to his good pleasure, because it pleased God, which he's purposed in himself, which is the Best possible thing, this is God's idea, God's plan, God has set it about and God has brought it to pass. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, lots of long words there, simply when everything is said and done, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. That's God's plan, whether Jew or Gentile, rich, free, bond, slave, male, female, all brought together in one in Christ. That's God's plan. And it's wonderful that all of God's creation, all those who have put their trust in Jesus, will be brought together in one. That's what God's been after. And that declaration that we just saw in the previous verse, he said to me, it's done. Everything has been done. Everything has been brought together now in Jesus Christ. It's done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. That phrase as well, I will give unto him there's a thirst of the fountain of life. It's really, let him come and drink undeservedly. You know, we don't deserve this. This isn't something we can earn or we can try hard to attain to. This isn't something we get because we've been really, really good. No, none of us deserve this. It's God's grace. It's because he loves us. It's because Christ died for our sin and because we simply have said, we accept we acknowledge that we were sinners and we, we reach out and say, Jesus, we need you. Somebody once said that, you know, you Christians, you, you kind of lean on Jesus, it's a bit like a crutch. And somebody responded and said, Jesus isn't a crutch, Jesus is a stretcher because you couldn't even limp into heaven without Jesus. None of us deserve it. But we're going we're to be given this. Now the contrast again is the ungodly. I mentioned this just a moment ago. Speak of those that are thirst, and we've touched on this a number of times recently. But this again, Lazarus and the beggar, and this this Lazarus the beggar, sorry, and the rich man. And the rich man is in torment in Hades, and he's crying out to ask if Lazarus could put some water on his tongue, and it wouldn't satisfy him. You know, the problem here is that he wants his thirst satisfied. 
But he's got no physical body by this point. Sin promises that which it cannot deliver. It's always been the same, it will always remain the same. Sin will always leave you unfulfilled. It will always leave you unsatisfied. It can never appease a longing. It will leave you eternally thirsty. That's the difference. The things that God offers will satisfy. They will meet every need. It's been said before, the sin will take you further than you wanted to go, it will keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and it will cost you more than you wanted to pay. But in contrast, verse 7, He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And the idea there, son, that's not a sexist thing, excluding females, the idea is you will be given that position of the firstborn. A number of times, a lot of modern translations, they'll, they'll try and change it, they'll, they'll put child in there to try and make it kind of contemporary. But they actually miss something by doing that, because in the culture, the idea was that the eldest son would be the one who would inherit all things. And God says, that is available to all of you, whether you're male, female, bond-free, whatever. You get the position of the firstborn, you get the inheritance that the firstborn will be given. That's what we're being told here. So you want to leave that word as some because it has more import. It means more. Whether you're male or female, you are given that inheritance, that position. It says, he that overcomes. It's an interesting statement in itself. But of course we can only truly overcome through Christ anyway. It's not our own ability, it's not speaking of our efforts. It's about abandoning and surrendering to Christ. He that overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God. He shall be my son. First John chapter 3, verse 1 says this. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed or poured upon us, showered upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Same idea again. What a blessing that God has said, you're going to be given this position, the highest position that you can possibly be given. But, verse 8 says, the fearful and unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters and liars, all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Reiterated for us again. So notice here that everybody that is ungodly, everybody that wants to live their own way, that rejects the only solution to the problem, which is Jesus Christ. There is only one other option. God, we're told, didn't create hell for mankind. Hell, this eternal lake of fire, was created for the devil and his angels as a place of punishment for them, for their rebellion. God doesn't want any man to go to this place. Peter tells us God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. But the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, whoremongers, all of these different groups. I mean, whoremongers, just speaking of anything that is sexually immoral, sometimes people accuse Christians of being homophobic. It's, it's nonsense. The Bible speaks about anything that is displeasing to God. Anything that is sexually immoral. Anything. And lumps in this category. Sorcerers, the, the Greek word pharmakia, it has to do with the using and supplying of drugs. Idolaters. And I mean, who isn't in that category naturally where you've made at some point an idol, something that you've placed of more importance in your life than God. And then, all liars. You see, the Bible doesn't discriminate. The Bible actually puts everybody in the same camp. 
are the only difference here between these two sides, those who are going to inherit and be God's children and those that are cast into the lake of fire. The only difference is your standing with Jesus Christ. Because there will be people that will enter heaven that will have spent most of their lives as liars and idolaters and whoremongers and sorcerers and so on. But if they've come to that place of putting their trust in Jesus and repenting of their sin, their sin is forgiven. But for those that choose not to accept that offer, there is no other alternative. That word, by the way, fearful. The implication is cowardly. People that are maybe too afraid to consider God because of their reputation, what other people might think of them. Well, that's putting their own name before God's name. As we said before, if you're born twice, you'll die once. If you're born once, you'll die twice. You see, God's rules are very simple. The fearful, the cowardly, the unbelieving, that's the, the people that think, well, they're, they're a good person already. They don't need anything else. They're not believing that Jesus is the answer. The abominable, the, the Greek word implies it, to stink. It's anything that's abhorrent to God. Murderers, and you know, Jesus clarifies this, even those with hatred in their heart. As I said already, the whoremongers, those who are sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the pharmakia, the idea of use and abuse of drugs, is, and so on. Idolaters, making a god to suit yourself. Liars, notice that the size and color is not specified, any lies. And hell, it's not just an allegory or a symbolism, as some people try and argue. Yeah, many people that t- try and teach that hell's not a real place, and they'll say, well, when you die, that's just it, you just stop, you know, existing. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus talked more about hell than any other single doctrine. He taught that it was real, eternal hell, where we're told the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. It speaks of this eternal place of torment and suffering. Let me just read this to you. This is from John Bunyan. He says this, In hell, thou shalt have none but a company of damned souls with an innumerable company of devils to keep company with thee. While thou art in this world, the very thought of the devils appearing to thee makes thy flesh to tremble on thy hair, stand upright on thy head. But oh, what wilt thou do when not only the supposition of devils appearing, but the real society of all of the devils of hell will be with thee? howling, roaring and screeching in such a hideous manner that thou will be even at thy wit's end and ready to run stark mad again for anguish and torment. If after ten thousand years an end should come, there would be comfort. But here is thy misery. Here thou must be forever. When thou seest what an innumerable company of howling devils thou art amongst, thou shalt think this again. This is my portion forever. When thou hast been in hell so many thousand of years, as there are stars in the firmament or drops in the sea or sands on the seashore, yet thou hast to lie there forever. Oh, this one word, ever. How long will it torment thy soul? And many are in the net moving toward that furnace of fire. That's what John Bunyan said. Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, Have you no wish for others to be saved? then you are not saved yourself, be sure of that. Quite a bold statement, but I think Spurgeon is spot on with that. You know, if you don't want other people to be saved, seriously question your own salvation. If you can be saved and been forgiven for all that you have done, and yet you have no desire to see other people brought to Christ, just 
Check your polls. Check the reality of your own salvation. Suppose you said again, he knows not the grace of God who has no desire that others should know it. Also, you will assuredly long for the souls of others if God has saved your soul. And they came unto me, verse 9, one of the seven angels which had the seven vials. John's starting to recognize these characters now. Full of the seven last plagues. And talked with me saying, come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me that great city. The holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. So now John gets to see this incredible vision. This is the destination of the saints. This is where we will spend our eternity. Hebrews again, we looked at this verse, speaking earlier, we read it, I want to read it all again, but just again, Abraham, looking for a city which has its foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Carries on, verse 18 of Hebrews 12, it says, For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched and burnt with fire, or unto blackness and darkness and tempest, speaking of Mount Sinai. So have you not come to that mountain? And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. And speaking of Israel in the wilderness, when God came down on Mount Sinai and they were frightened, just for they could not endure that which was commanded. And so, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through with a dart. So saying, we haven't come to that place, but we have come. He says, and so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake, but you are come unto Mount Zion unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Verse 11, having the glory of God, we're told this city, And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Just the the, the number of gemstones we'll see mentioned in a moment. Having the glory of God about it. Now, that glory seems to have existed in the Garden of Eden. But also, God sent this glory down upon the tabernacle in the wilderness. Verse 34 of Exodus 40 says, Then a cloud covered the tent of congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter into the tent of congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In Second Chronicles, we read of a time, just picking up verse 1 of chapter 7, 2 Chronicles, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. God's presence comes down and it's breathtaking. We're told in verse 2, the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Something was happening that was so amazing, so just totally beyond anything they could process. They just fall down before God as God's glory is manifest before them. Well, this place is going to be full of God's glory. And we're told that it had a wall, great and high, and it had twelve gates. And the twelve gates, uh, the twelve gates, twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them 
the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he talked with me, which had a golden reed, to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lies four square and its length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs, and the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. Let me just try and unpack what we're seeing, what John's seeing. Uh, twelve thousand furlongs may not mean much to you and I. Approximately we're talking about fifteen hundred miles. Now, people think maybe we've got a cube, or some suggest a pyramid. Because clearly the base is 1,500 miles square, and it says it's 1,500 miles high. Now, some people suggest that maybe this is a pyramid, but pyramids are often associated with false, false worship and various occultic practices. But God seems to use cubes in the models that he has used in the past. In the tabernacle, for example, in the wilderness, the Holy of Holies was a cube, this section in the middle here. My clicker works. Um, you see, it's 15, but 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet in the center there. In the temple that Solomon built, Solomon, uh, given the plans by David, Solomon constructed and finished the, the building, double the size there, the Holy of Holies in the center, 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet, but again, it's cube shaped. Just as a contrast, ancient Babylon, we were told, was 15 miles each side. I mean, that was a massive city. Even by today's standards, that's a large city. It seems to be kind of a poor imitation. That's man's best. I mean, lots written about ancient Babylon. The walls were so wide, they could have chariot races around the walls and so on. And you're sure you've heard about the hanging gardens of Babylon. I mean, that was the best that man has ever done. The most elaborate, the most ornate. They had an incredible water system with the, the, uh, the river... Euphrates running through the centre of the city and this whole irrigation system set up. And the accounts just speak of this place as being one of the wonders of the ancient world. Well, that was man's best. But God is going to create this city that is going to be massive. And we're talking 1,500 miles square. To give you an idea of the scale of this, we're talking, you can see England at the top there. You've got the whole of Europe pretty much in that area. That is roughly 1,500 miles square. I mean, we're talking about a city the size of our moon. That's going to be the size of this city that God is preparing for us. And that's why probably we're going to need a new earth because the current earth wouldn't be large enough to hold and house something that big. There's no secret. I mean, some of the stars, some of the planets that they've discovered are just huge on a, on a scale we can't even imagine compared to the size of even our own earth or our own sun and so on. And he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits according to the measure of a man, that is of the angel, and the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto glass, clear glass. And the idea here is that everything is transparent and reflective. The light that's shining in the center of the city is just going to radiate out. It's going to be, just, I struggle for words to try and describe how incredible visually this place is going to be. Cubit is the distance from the elbow to the tip of the forefinger, typically about 18 inches. But we're told that this is measured against the statue of the angel, so quite what size we don't know. But we're looking about walls here that are some in the region of about 400 feet thick going around this city. And the walls are made from solid jasper. I mean, it would be just, just stunning. And the city itself is made of pure, transparent gold. The, the, the purity of the gold is so wonderful. 
And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the chalcedony, sorry, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, sixth sardis, uh, or, or sardius, uh, the seventh uh, chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, uh, the tenth uh, chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, and the twelfth an amethyst. So these beautiful gemstones now, the walls made of jasper, the city, pure gold like glass, these foundation stones, just like the high priest's breastplate, they had the twelve stones to represent the twelve tribes of Israel. The gates were made of this solid pearl, we're told, a single pearl. It's symbolic of the Gentiles seemingly as well, because that's a, often assigned to Gentiles' pearls. And the streets are made of pure gold like glass. Now, these are the stones and typically the colours that we understand that they'll be. You can see them there. I'm not going to read them all out to you. Uh, they'll be in the notes if you want to look at it uh, yourself. But there, I had a book and I lent it some years ago and I never got it back, unfortunately. But it went through these gemstones and each of these gemstones have unique properties in terms of the way they refract light. And other gemstones don't have the same properties as these specific ones. The comment was made that how did John choose just the right 12 that all have the same properties? without knowing all of those things back in the day when John was writing this. Now, there's a question as to how this is going to be constructed. If we're going to have these these three gates per side, are we then going to have 12 layers of these stones, one upon another? That's one possibility, and some scholars will go with that. The other suggestion is that we've got these gates going around the city, and then each gate typically would be built upon a foundation of one of those types of stones. I don't know. I think possibly this may be the the way that it's being described to us. In a sense, it's irrelevant. It's going to be stunning, breathtaking beyond anything we can imagine. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was made of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. And by the way, notice that St. Peter is not standing at the pearly gates. Uh, something we're often told, but no mention of Peter standing at the pearly gates. Peter is inside the city somewhere, enjoying himself, no doubt. Not really bothered about gate duty. By the way, angels were standing at the gates, if you noticed. And our entrance, by the way, is not dependent upon whether we've been good or bad. Because people think that, you know, we've been good, whether you've been good or you're bad, and you get to the pearly gates, and you'll speak to St. Peter, and you'll try and convince him to let you in, and, you know, if you can bargain well enough, then he'll let you in. That's not how it works. You're saved because of the blood of Jesus. And that's the only criteria for entrance to this city. You see, everybody's going to face Jesus, either as Lord or as judge. And then we're told, just coming to the end of the chapter, and I saw no temple therein. It's interesting, every every place that God has established so far, there seems to have been a temple. You know, the tabernacle originally, and then the temple, and even during the millennium there'll be a temple. But now there will be no temple. Because what did the temple represent? The temple represented God dwelling with his people. But that won't be necessary now because God is there, present with his people. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. They are dwelling in the midst of the people. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of of God did light in it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. You know, in the beginning, God created light. And we read in Genesis, God said, let there be light and there was light. That's how it's translated. If you look at that in the Hebrew, you see the Hebrew letters there. The actual text 
is really said God, be light, be light. A way we could translate that quite legitimately is, God said, let the light illuminate. The idea really is that light has always been there. And that may seem a kind of a strange concept to get your head around. But you see, if the light is to illuminate, it had to already exist. And what are we told in scripture? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, The God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God says that God commanded the light to shine. The light had to be there for that command to be given. It was pre-existent. In Isaiah, we're told, I form the light, I create darkness, I make peace, I create evil. I, the Lord, do these things. You see, evil is created not because God makes bad things, but because God is good, it allows for the possibility of evil. Because light exists, we have the possibility of darkness. There is no measure for darkness. You can't measure darkness. Darkness is simply the absence of light. Again, these words, I'm going to go through the details now. We'll have much in the notes if you want to look at this further. John 8 verse 12 Then spoke Jesus again saying unto them I am the light of the world He that follows me shall not walk in darkness But shall have the light of life There's something unique about light And there's something intrinsically connected With the person of Jesus Christ Jesus doesn't say I am like light He says I am the light of the world 1 John 1 5 This then is the message which you have heard of him And declare unto you that God is light And in him is no darkness at all you see, light was pre-existent, I believe, in the person of Jesus. God commands the light to shine. The light simply then illuminates all things. This was before the sun was created. Interestingly, we're told by physicists that every particle has an antiparticle. And if they annihilate each other, they produce a photon, which is a, the smallest unit of light. And they suggest that the reaction could go the other way. So it's been suggested that if you started with a photon of light, you could create matter. And this is what quantum physicists, not trying to prove any point in the Bible, this is what they've said. Now, the implication therefore is that light could create matter. Well, isn't it interesting that that's exactly what the Bible teaches? That Jesus, who is the light of the world, created all things? I'll skip through these scriptures for the sake of time. But look at this, it's an interesting study. Verse 22 carries on, and I saw no temples, sorry, we've read this already. In Isaiah, and just more reference, just reread this, Isaiah 60. The sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee. But the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God the glory. The sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself, for the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy morning shall be ended. Oh, these just references. In verse 24. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honour into it. Now this is really interesting. It's implying that outside of the city there will be nations, there will be people, there will be life in this new earth. But how privileged are those ones who get to live in this city? So the question we have to ask then, who are the nations? Who are those people? Who will be those kings that will come to the city and bring in their, their tribute to, this, to, to Jesus? Well, I believe the tribulation martyrs will be one group. Those born during the millennium where Satan will be bound, not part of the church. And then the sheep nations possibly of Matthew 25. 
But of course all of this has to be put in context of what we've already read. That God is going to bring everybody to the great white throne who has not put their trust in Jesus. So there's just possibilities. But there's seemingly from this verse there will be life on this new earth outside of the city. But the real blessing are for those who get to dwell in this city. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honour of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And next Sunday we'll continue, we'll talk more about the Lamb's book of life, and we'll look at some more details as it just concludes in the first seven verses of the next chapter, looking at the rest of the description we have of this city. It's just absolutely breathtaking. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we just thank you that you have given us these exceedingly great and precious promises. Something that we should be excited about, Lord, the whole prospect that we can be going home. That, Lord, all the troubles of this life will be ended. That you would wipe away every tear from our eyes. Oh, Lord, how we long for this place. How we long for an eternity with you. Lord, how we will enjoy and rejoice being around those that we have loved. Those who have gone on before us. Oh Lord, we just look forward expectantly to look all that you are going to do. And stir us, we pray, with these things. May they not be just filed away, but may they be active in our minds as we set our minds on the things above. And may they act like a compass, Lord, pointing us towards all that is you, all that is yet to come, Lord, all that we should be living for. That it would change the way we live our lives. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.